HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. World Central Kitchen is serving thousands of fresh meals to Ukrainian families fleeing home, as well as people remaining in the country. This week on Let's Talk About Food, host Louisa Kasdan spoke with Henry Patterson about his upcoming relief trip. So you're going to Poland, and I think you told me you're going to be there for at least two weeks. I'm going to Poland to help feed Ukrainian refugees. With Jose Andreas's World Central Kitchen, I decided that's what I wanted to do for my 70th birthday. I leave in just a few days. We all see that what the Russians are doing is contemptible. As a food person, we all love to help. It's in our DNA. And here are people who really need our help. So if you want to help the Ukrainian refugees, either with money or even your hands and heart, find hashtag Chefs for Ukraine and World Central Kitchen. We have to do something. We can help. Remember, hashtag Chefs for Ukraine. This episode is brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. This is Gastronomica, a Heritage Radio Network podcast. I'm your host for today, Dan Bender. This episode is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. Our spring 2022 issue, now available online, features articles on foods on the move, exploring issues of power, authenticity, and emotion. Join us over the next couple of weeks as we talk with authors and subscribe to the Gastronomica podcast feed on your favorite platform to stay updated on our newest episodes. We have two guests this week. Sarah Al-Sayed is a postdoctoral scholar at Arizona State University, where she completed a doctorate in sustainability, focusing on regenerative food systems in arid regions like Arizona and Egypt. Christy Spackman is an assistant professor at ASU in both the School for the Future of Innovation and Society and the School of the Arts, Media, and Engineering. And they have joined us to talk about their fascinating paper, Follow the Ferments, Inclusive Food Governance in Arizona. 
this paper really made me think about fermented foods and food safety in all kinds of new ways. Thank you for joining us, and welcome, Sarah and Christy, to the show. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure. We have a big cast of characters in today's podcast. Two scholars, a range of fermented foods, the people in Arizona who prepare them and relish them, and of course, countless microorganisms. I thought it might be fun to meet them in turn. Starting with you both, the humans in the room. How did the research lead you to fermentation and fermented food? Sarah, do you want us to go first? Sure. Um, I have had an interest in traditional foods for a very long time. I've uh, been part of um, the slow food movement in Egypt and then in North Africa, and so have been really entrenched in understanding traditional uh, foods and working with them for for before even starting my PhD. Um, and I was introduced to Christy when she first came to ASU, who was uh, also interested in some aspect of traditional foods, uh, specifically the microbial world, the microbiopolitics. And so um, this is how we both got kind of introduced to each other. And so I then transitioned into that space a little bit more, uh, focusing on fermentation. I don't know, uh, Christy, if you want to say something about how we both got to know each other in that space. Certainly. As Sarah mentioned, um, when I was at Arizona State, or when I first started there, I had the chance to teach a class I had developed at Harvey Mudd College called Microbial Geographies. And with that class, we were specifically trying to understand the way that as microbes move, they intersect intersect with regulatory policies in human life in ways that really complicate the easy narratives we have about safety and danger. And Sarah happened to hear about my class and joined in. And we got talking about what we see as positives and negatives in our current food safety regulatory systems and started to speculate how might this world look different and what possibilities could emerge if we shifted uh, from a fairly binary perspective that's really informed by 20th century uh, food science and microbiology into perhaps a more expansive approach that thinks beyond binaries of good and bad and safety and lack of safety into uh, a more nuanced look at how microbes interact with people and food. Yeah, and indeed, when I read your piece, I've, I've, I'll share this in a moment, but I certainly ended up going to my kitchen and refrigerator and cabinets and thinking about what might be living there in new kinds of ways. But let's think about the foods that you encountered. Um, Christy, can you tell us what, what were the foods that you wrote about in your article? How were they made? So um, I will give an overview and then turn this over to Sarah because uh, a lot of the decisions about which foods we chose to follow uh, really came out of Sarah's dissertation research. Um, but the original decision to look at Gundruk came out of a collaboration with one of our colleagues, Nalini Chetri, who's interested in what she calls cooking ecologies. Nalini um, is deeply involved in the Nepalese community in the Phoenix region. There's actually quite a large group. And when we were discussing 
with her, we'd received a small uh, seed grant from the Sweetie Food Center for, or the Sweeney, Sweetie Center for Sustainable Food Systems at Arizona State University to, to really explore these cooking ecologies in the region. Um, and Nalini, who was part of that grant, had suggested that we would really benefit from looking at gundruk, which is a fermented green made from cabbage leaves that's traditionally produced um, in Nepal and is quite difficult to find commercially in the United States. And so she introduced us to friends and colleagues and allowed us an entrance into this co-community of creation. And Sara, I'll, I'll let you pick it up from there. Uh, yes, I can tell you a bit more about Gundruk. So as we started interviewing different um, people who were involved uh, with the production of some of these foods, it got really, really fascinating. So uh, with the Nepali specifically uh, community, they were, it was, um, you know, this feeling of like, every time we brought the, the term Gundruk up, it was like this really fuzzy feeling that a lot of people had of like, home and being around family and this these ideas of like this is something this is a product that you don't you don't buy in the store even in Nepal you get it from trusted people so there's a sense of family family and relations that is related to the production of a food like this um and um I got a ch we got a chance to speak to different people who were producing it in Arizona which is a very different climate from where they would be in the ne Nepal and uh, like more uh, cooler temperatures. Um, but essentially it is a product that is meant to be uh, produced when there's plentiful uh, leafy greens. So um, cabbage leaves, uh, mustard greens. So any of these leafy greens um, that have high nutritional values and would not be present in the winter. And so what they do is they're essentially... Uh, washing them up and then sun drying them. It's a process, like several steps where there's sun drying, there's pounding, then there's fermentation, and then there's redrying, like several steps that are explained in the article. And so I'd let, let people go there and read it. Um, but then the thing is that this product, this fermented leaves, essentially then can get used in so many other foods after that. So they get put into salads, into uh, soups. And so it's one way of, of just bringing some nutritious food along the way throughout throughout the year. So that was one, one product that we chose. And it was really interesting um, also talking to uh, a person who had a food truck who's, who's starting a, a restaurant who was really keen on trying to bring it back and trying to, you know, navigate how is he, you know, in a restaurant, not just in, in a home kind of product, going to be able to, to sell this product, um, uh, you know, without, with, within the school, the school, the, the regulations that exist uh, within, you know, the food business and the food trucks and so forth. Sarah. Uh, yes. Can I add something to that? Yes. Please go ahead, Christy. So um, this chef that Sarah's mentioning, Subhash Adav, is an especially interesting. Uh, he, he was an especially interesting person to talk to because he was trained as a traditional food scientist, and and that means he was extremely aware, aware of the regulatory challenges that he faced in introducing gundruk, as opposed to uh, the communities that we also 
got to work with the specifically many groups of women who were just doing this in their home and weren't necessarily embedded in and had not yet thought of being embedded in an, an economy of, ex, of like buying and selling of this product. And so for Chef uh, Yadav, it was very much this, well, we can just do it in a very traditional way. Um, and, and correct me, Sarah, if I'm misremembering, but he, he seemed less concerned with the economies of sharing and caring and more concerned with being aligned with immediately this, this Western way of going from product to, uh, let, let's see if I can get this right, of going from we, we made this thing to we can sell this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I agree. So, there, there was definitely thanks, still uh, a sharing of, of that culture. But yes, it was definitely very entrenched in that Western understanding of what food safety is for sure. Sarah, can I ask you, um, what does the gundruk taste like to you? And I'm also wondering, do you think it tastes different to some of the people that you met in your research? Yeah, so it's interesting because before I, f- I, I, tr- I tried it, um, I read about it and the, the profile that was said by, by different people on, online and stuff was that it's, a, it's as if it's gone bad, it's off. Um, and I, I was, so I was a bit skeptical, worried to try it, but to be honest, when I, I did try it and, um, uh, I, I personally really loved it. It was, there was a little bit of sourness to it, but it was cooked in with a soup. And so the flavors that were more dominant was there was a beef broth and there was, um, potatoes in it and some other vegetables I can't remember right now, but to me, it tasted very, um, um, you know, like comforting, you know, uh, so a bit sour, there's a lot of like potatoes in it. And so it was quite comforting. Um, but the, so what the funny thing is though, in this experience of eating, uh, my then host was telling me how, um, some of the women are actually judged by their gundruk in that, (laughs) It, you know, you can tell if you're a, a good, you know, caretaker, housewife, because it's traditionally done by women, even though we've tried, I tried some of the ones that were done by men uh, here in, in Arizona. But it's, it's actually, <laughs> they get judged, you know, if you're not a good gundruk maker, you know, your mother-in-law will be like, ah, you know, you need to work on your gundruk, you're not doing a good job <laughs> as, as a, a caretaker. And so there's also that kind of association with it. And supposedly the lady that I tried it from um, did a really good job. Her her mother-in-law had approved, she had take, t- it had taken her years to reach that level, essentially. I love the story that you're telling there, <laughs> because in a way, I think, I think you're spinning a narrative about relationships of, of gender within humans that are partly mediated by relationships with, with microorganisms. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I want to call out, we have a, a separate paper that draws on um, this research in a different way, really paying attention to gender. And some of our reviewers and collaborators really struggled with the gendered relationship that we saw emerging and in, in the ways in which the women that we interviewed very clearly had created uh, structures of hygiene that were related to women's cycles that uh, for many living in the United States or in North America or even in 
Western Europe feel deeply uncomfortable. And we got pushback and our response was, this is what the people we talked to told us. We'd like to honor them and their, their experience and their understanding of how you keep a food safe. And, and indeed, it was, it was, it's interesting you mentioned that because that was one of the questions when we turned to this question of how we should be understanding food safety. That was absolutely one of the questions that, that I noted in your, in your text and wanted to ask you about. But can you introduce, before we get to that, can you introduce, Christy, why don't I ask you this? Um, can you introduce the microorganisms that, in a sense, that, that you also met in your research? Sure. So I'm going to just start by saying we primarily met lactobacilli (laughs) and a a broad, broad range and number of them. And that's not a surprise. We were looking at fermentation in one of the core bacteria that are one of the core strains of microbial life that fermenters aim to encourage is lactobacilli. And that's in large part because the production of, well, Historically, this isn't true. So I just want to bound that what I'm saying next is definitely a reflection of contemporary microbiological understanding. But lactobacilli produce lactic acid. And in the process, they are they uh, help make the food pickled, essentially. They, they, they are a core reason of what makes fermentation safe. And so the Different foods that show up in this paper and for people who study fermentation more largely, they all hinge in many ways on people becoming shepherds of lactobacilli, of of trying to promote that growth while creating conditions that are less conducive to the growth of other forms of microbial life. And lactobacilli themselves are quite complicit in this. They have a process that's called corm sensing, where they actually, as they grow, they can, if they recognize other bacteria present, they can actually produce uh, chemicals that can be harmful to those other bacteria, not just lactic acid. And so uh, there are processes that go on within the microbial world that can feel from a human perspective, especially if you anthropomorphize it as, as quite uncaring. Um, but we will set those aside for uh, other scholars who have, and we'll be looking at them and here instead, just think about that collaborative relationship of creating the conditions for food to be preserved. You know, when I was reading your paper and preparing for today's conversation, I, I decided to, to follow the ferments in, in my own house. And, and I wandered around the house and looking for, for the ferments um, with all the questions of what it means to be microscopic um, at the front of my mind. And there's a great deal more fermented things in my house than, than I expected them to be, especially if I'm going to be perfectly honest, wine. Um, but speaking of that bottle of wine, so much of what I had, essentially everything that I had that was fermented had some kind of commercial label on it. I suspect that's going to be similar for many of our listeners. Is there something we should learn from that about how fermentation exists within our food system? Sarah? Sure. Yeah. Um, I would say that in our food system, yes, you're right. You will have labels because it is highly 
regulated. Uh, at least some of these products that are making it to supermarkets uh, and uh, grocery stores and so forth. So um, at least in the United States, you have you know an F- FDA body that tells you what um, uh, what are the different standards that different foods, be it uh, cheeses or wines or so forth. Are supposed to do so. For example, in the United States, um, not all states uh, are allowed to use uh, raw milk. Um, actually, very few uh, states have uh, regulations that enable raw milk to be used. Uh, one of our products in um, in this paper was dairy products from the Middle East, um, and the the challenge there was that uh, the regulations uh, stipulate that a lot of uh, of Cheese products need to be pasteurized, which is again what uh, what Christy was talking about in terms of pasteurian um, understanding of food and microbes and getting rid of microbes uh, to a certain extent so that it does not create uh, foodborne diseases. And so a lot of the cheeses uh, will will be pasteurized and then processed into uh, uh, different types of cheeses. With uh, the Montaget Alban or the dairy products in the, of the Middle East, most of them are actually, it's preferable for them to be raw milk that is then, uh, you know, processed into different ways. Yes, they will be, uh, maybe, you know, some of them will, will, will get uh, heated to a certain temperature and so forth. But the idea is not to get rid of all the microbes uh, the opposite. It's to cultivate them, to make them uh, increase more. And so some of the, most of these products would not make it to a store with a label because they do not fit comfortably within the regulatory aspects. But I would, I I would let uh, Christy continue talking because she's knows more about the regulatory aspects. (laughs) I think um, part of what Sarah is getting at and part of what your question is getting at, Dan, is this discomfort that has emerged specifically in North America over the 20th century with regards to our relationship to microbes. As there's this awareness of what causes foods to become dangerous and this increasing growth of regulatory structures to keep us safe, there's also an increasing divergence from uh, more traditional food production practices and uh, acceptance of uh, commercially produced food system. And part of that seems to have also resulted in, and and this is a chicken egg question because we didn't go do the deep historical work to look at this. this, And I anticipate some of my food studies colleagues have, and I'm having one of those early Sunday morning moments where all the names I should have at the tip of my tongue are somewhere buried under a deep layer of sleepy pillow. Um, But the way in which the production of food gets outsourced to others also includes an outsourcing of safety and danger. So we've placed a lot of trust into regulatory bodies. And I I recognize there are many instances where that trust has been broken and yet it's still pretty strong. And when I teach my microbial geographies class, one of the things we do is we ferment all semester long. The students pick a, a project that they want to do and then it's their job to spend the semester documenting their evolving relationship with the microbes that they're caring for. And I've had students talk about the disgust they feel towards 
the products they're making, the fear they feel towards the products they're making. And sometimes that changes and sometimes it doesn't. And then at the end of the semester, we have this massive practice and trust where everyone brings something that they've been working on learning how to make all semester long to share. And we have to decide as a community which of those things we're willing to put into our bodies and not. And I'm going to tell you, honestly, and Sarah, Sarah experienced this, one of our uh, practices we do in this class when we're talking about Deleuze and Guattari's uh, idea of the assemblage is we build a ginger bug together over the week where you we started in class and then the students have to figure out ways to pass it around to care for it over the week to week and a half to get it built and growing. And then we come back and... Uh, set up to make lacto-fermented soda. And frankly, Dan, uh, this last time we did it, students brought back a really funky lacto-ferment. It was the sort of thing where you smell it and you think, ah, no, no, no. <laughs> like, do you trust? And, and I think that is the core question here. Fermented foods produced outside of some sort of strict regulatory boundaries and uh, great microbiological analytical sections require massive amounts of trust in the people producing them. Christy, can I jump in with a question based on, on your very last words there? Is the trust and distrust, is that a problem with the anonymity of the people who make them? Or is it a fundamental distrust that we've learned to have of bacteria? Can I say yes? <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's because, a Sunday morning, sure. Um, yes, because there, so the, in many ways, we're more comfortable with the anonym, anonymity of folks who make our commercially fermented foods because we have an entire infrastructure in place to keep us safe. And, and frankly, that's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing that as a society, we believe and trust that infrastructure to mostly work for us or, or to work for us like 99% of the time and the other 1% of the time there will be a recall. Now, the number of recalls sure seem to be increasing, um, but within that infrastructure, we we have a fair amount of trust. And I, I think looking, for example, at some of Gabriella Petrick's work on uh, early food systems with H.J. Hines is a good example of how that trust got built through name brands. Um, but the, the second thing that's going on here, when you think of something like going to a farmer's market and buying a soft cheese and then going home and getting sick with listeria, is there's always this underlying weird narrative that seems to exist around individual responsibility for not getting sick, for evaluating the person who you buy something from if you choose to go outside of those regulatory systems. And that individualization of responsibility is quite scary, especially because it's so often, at least in the case of listeria, seems to turn around and fall on a pregnant woman who made a choice that everyone says, well, that was a really bad choice, rather than recognizing that there, there's this larger infrastructure where perhaps she had purchased food and I, I'm specifically using the archetypical figure of the pregnant woman who buys soft cheese that was at a farmer's market that ends up being quite harmful um, because it's a common trope when you're in a micro like a food safety class that's the example that gets thrown at you 
what's not acknowledged is perhaps this was a relationship that's been going on for years, that this wasn't just a one-time thing. And what does it mean when the microbes themselves then violate the trust that the two humans have created? And so it's, you know, safety and danger and risk are all just wound up in these deep, intense relationships between people and microbes and foods. Yeah, I would also like to add in that tension, and that doesn't really answer your question, Dan, but it expands it, which is that, you know, in a in a system that is uh, ever more expansive and growing and industrial, where you are not related uh, or know, you know, your producers, you, you might be getting your romaine lettuce all the way from Yuma, you really do need to regulate um, uh, foods because the reality is that you do have these massive outbreaks of uh, dangerous uh, you know, bacteria, overload of bacteria like E. coli, if we're talking about romaine lettuce, that's just happening right now again in <laughs> Yuma, where, you know, in Arizona, um, where a lot of lettuce was pr- produced for the, for, for the United States. So, you know, there, there needs to be uh, some regulation that takes place. But the problem that I think arises is that people hear a lot of, of these stories and the news and so forth. And so they're beca- they're, the relationship that we've developed over the last, say, 100 years has become one of fear towards bacteria. We don't see them. We don't see these microbes. And so we rely on, on the experts, so to speak, on the media to tell us. Uh, how to relate with them. And a lot of the conversations are not ones of like the beneficial microbes or the uh, communities that are actually helping us, uh, but rather the ones that are harming us. And so there becomes, a, I think, a skepticism that people have towards microbes. They're just clustered as um, danger zone. And that's not just in the food world and, and uh, in the production part. It's also, I think, translated in the, in the farming aspect as well, as well where, uh, again, industrial agriculture has tried to eliminate other kinds of uh, life and microbial activity. And now we're learning more and more that that is essential for the healthy growth of of the roots of the plants of that ecosystem as well. So I think part of it is also this um, blanket uh, uh, relationship that we're having towards microbes when we're not seeing the nuances of the thousands and thousands of different microbes that actually exist. And so now that we're discovering this, you know, I think microbes have gotten also uh, a bit more um, attention in the past few years because of the uh, relationship with antibiotics and the fact that there are now, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're developing uh, uh, an unhealthy relationship with antibiotics and there are superbugs. It is all related to this idea that we just blanket um, solve the problem by just trying to eliminate all microbes rather than try to understand how we can work together and create more of a balance less time appreciating or living with microbes and a bit more time eradicating them. In other words, let's step away for a moment and we'll be back uh, with Gastronomica on Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. 
With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Are you a business owner? This spring, amplify your business and support HRN's mission by becoming a business member. HRN is dedicated to spotlighting small businesses that keep our communities vibrant. With a $500 business membership, HRN can shine a light on your work and you can help sustain our mission to transform the way people think about food. As a thank you for this tax-deductible donation, your business will receive on-air mentions, social media posts, listings on our website, and more. You will also play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash biz to become a business member today. That's heritageradionetwork.org slash B-I-Z. And we're back. This is Gastronomica on the Heritage Radio Network. I am Dan Bender talking with Sara Al-Sayed and Christy Spackman about their article, Follow the Ferments, Inclusive Food Governance in Arizona. Now available in issue 21.1 of Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. Sara, let me turn to you. If you have this pile of leafy greens, some cabbage leaves perhaps, some, some of the greens from a cauliflower, how does that become gundruk? So, um, yeah, it essentially goes through several steps over a couple of, a few weeks um, where the, the greens are first of all uh, washed uh, and then they are pounded. Uh, the idea is you're trying to get rid of as much moisture as possible so that it doesn't create funk, but it creates good microbial um, activity. They're then um, sun-dried. Sorry, they're then uh, 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 yeah, sun-dried, and then they're brought back in again uh, and chopped up into, into pieces uh, and then left again to dry. So the first time around, they're dried kind of like um, uh, hanging uh, from like a, a cord or something as if you're hanging clothes. Um, and then they are yeah, brought in again and chopped up into smaller pieces. And then they're placed in uh, jars and left in a cool, dry place over several weeks where the microbes that are naturally on them in the same way you have in kimchi or uh, sauerkraut uh, start um, activating the, the fermentation process. Um, they're then taken out again. Uh, dried one more time, and then they're stored dry, and they get reconstituted when they get used. So they're left dry uh, in their the pantries of people's homes, essentially. And Christy, can I ask you a deeply loaded question? Is this gundruk safe? Or, to put it another way, who gets to decide that these leaves that that Sarah has just described who gets to decide they're safe? I think this is such a fun question, Dan, and it goes back to that moment of sensory engagement I described earlier with the students bringing in uh, that ginger bug that you smell and sniff and 
think, wow, that's really funky. I don't think that's going to make a delicious thing. And so the collaboration around the decision of safety is, or, or the evaluation of whether something is safe is deeply imbricated in systems of sensory monitoring. So the processes of learning through time, through apprenticeship, if, if, as you're learning to make gundruk, when is this good? And when, is, when has something gone wrong? And one of the things that our collaborators brought out to us was really that the fear of mold. Like you had to take steps to avoid your, avoid getting mold in your leafy greens. And, you know, that's definitely a safety issue, but it's also an issue of learning to do this properly. And so deciding if it's safe is a collaborative effort between gaining tacit knowledge, learning to use your senses to say, yeah, this is the appropriate level of dryness. We've pounded it enough to get enough moisture out of it, um, all the way down to the end consumer, where then in many cases, so for example, when Nalini brought in to me like a, a little jar of gundruk into my office and, and she handed this to me and said, here, try this. This is what we made. That, that's a moment where I didn't have any of that additional level of training. For me, that safety in, or that evaluation of safety entirely rested in my relationship with Nalini and my intellectual trust in lactobacilli to do their job well, um, if given the right systems, like if the right conditions are created. And of course, and this is the last thing, my own sensorial evaluation. And there I want to put an asterisk on it because... As Sarah mentioned, when she was reading online the descriptions of Gundruk, those verbal descriptions do not do much for someone who has not grown up with this food. And I can think of other fermented things like natto or um, kimchi that often are described as, oh, you know, that's gross, that's dangerous, or even, frankly, a bunch of French cheeses. Um, these, these are things that your initial sensorial reaction might say, oh, that's not safe, and, that, and that's incorrect. And so learning to navigate for those of us who are just at the very end of it between, oh, this smells different to this is not safe, that, that, that's an interesting challenge. Sara, when you were doing the field research with people, as the, perhaps as they were making the gundruk and other fermented products, did they bring up food safety or did you? Um, it was brought up not as a term. So it's not the term food safety, but, you know, things like um, cleanliness or hygiene or, um, you know, one concept in, in uh, Nepali culture is this idea of that they call joto. Um, which refers to cleanliness, like who is supposed to be producing the gundruk? Uh, again, going back to that menstruation, like women should not be producing it when they're on the menstrual cycle. There should not be any um, pets around as they're producing it. So it wasn't so much like, oh, we have food safety regulations, but there's definitely an awareness of um dangers of food. And I think one of the other implicit things that was said was like, oh, this, you know, this person doesn't produce gundruk that's very tasty. And in that, in that way, they're implying that they haven't gone through the proper protocols. And there's a lot of um, apprenticeship, which is interesting. So this is not a food that you just 
look at a recipe and and do. You need to apprentice. You need to be part of a collective of other producers, and and you do this with a family, and you kind of learn it, and you're learning it as a, uh, you know, a younger person, a younger child, and then you try it out, and your first few times might not be that great, and so it is. It is a whole construction of food regulation, and in our opinion, or at least in my opinion, that is not necessarily the same, uh, you know, stipulated in the same way as standards that you would get from from the FDA. So the answer is yes. <laughs> Sara, let me pick up on something that you had mentioned earlier, a distinction that you and Christy were making between the fellow who was making the gundruk for sale and the women who are making it perhaps for family use, for hospitality reasons. Why does that distinction matter in how we understand or should understand food safety and its relationship to taste in new kinds of ways? Yeah, I don't think we still have an answer for this. We're exploring that. But what we're trying to say is that we, uh, in a way, need to start thinking keeping a, a, a more open mind when we talk about traditional foods in that there are a set of tacit um, knowledge systems and, and learnings and understandings of what food safety are that happen within that family uh, atmosphere, with that, within that community atmosphere that don't quite translate as well in um, the more commercial space. And so one of the things that we're kind of, we were trying to juggle with or trying to think of is how do these spaces translate? How can a product that is so embedded in a culture that has to do with trust and relations and apprenticeship and this kind of tacit knowledge, how can that so that we can keep it, so that it can continue to exist. How can that take a different form and exist in a new kind of space? So maybe not a space that is as strict as the food regulation space that has dictated how commercial products like wines and cheeses today look like, but something in between, a third space that kind of brings these worlds together. And in the case of Gundruk, I think that, you know, the, 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 producer that was trying to do it for his restaurant was just thinking of the regulatory space that he had been trained in and was not necessarily bringing in those relations. And so there might be a space that we, we don't know the answer to right now, but we want to explore is how, how that space could be, had, could be created um, in the future. May I add to that? Please. So... What SAR is getting at that we think is such an important thing is the way in which the contemporary food regulatory system, by not allowing for those other aspects of what makes a food a food, those relationships, to continue to be part of it once it becomes a food that is capable of being commercially produced under our current, this is the longest sentence, but under our current regulatory system, that approach is stripping food of something that's really important. It's stripping food of its place within a network of makers. And one could argue that any food, once it's produced commercially, has been stripped of its place within a network of makers. And we're turning around and saying, but no, that doesn't have to be the case. And Dan, you highlighted your wine 
earlier, um, I think that's one of the few foods, wines and cheese, that have been really allowed to keep their place. And Sarah and I suspect that there's something distinctly Eurocentric going on in allowing those foods to still have those, or at least that there has been space carved out in some way for those foods to still have those sorts of relationships present, especially at the higher end of the market versus these foods that are coming from other areas, those relationships are most distinctly, there's no space for them right now in our regulatory production and distribution systems. And let me ask one final question, and I'll ask you both to muse on this. Is there a possibility of reconciliation? If we recognize that both the existing regulatory regimes of food safety are also based on sensory notions of trust. Um, Is there a reconciliation? Is there a possibility of reconciliation between existing um, regimes of food safety and some of the perhaps more local systems that you guys encountered in your research? Sarah? You want to take a stab at that first? Um, I think so, but I, I think it also requires us to think a little bit different about food, you know. So I think it is important for us to, you know, reestablish relations. And, and this is happening already through farmer's market. So unfortunately, you will go to farmer's market where people are selling fermented pickled foods that... Um, in that state might not be legal under a cottage industry, for example, but they've established relationships with people and people are buying. We've saw, we saw this here in Arizona where people are buying their product because, you know, they've come once and twice and three times to the farmer's market and have created a relationship with these people. And so they, they are purchasing it. So the, the, the fact that, uh, exists that people are still purchasing some of these products. So what we're trying to say is, um, maybe not have it at the fringes. So have it in a way where uh, it is just more transparent. So it could be that part of the process is that the producers are just telling their consumers what the process is. So educating them about that process, that might be part of it. Um, Another aspect, and we bring that up also in our uh, paper, is that maybe there's a role for technology to play, something that can bring to light um, some of these processes that we cannot see. So how can technology come and aid and enlighten those microbes and, and let them be seen? Are there um, you know, uh, technologies that can identify in a cheap way, in an easy way, what these microbial populations are, these lactobacilli? And, um, and therefore, you know, a small-scale producer could use one of these tests and showcase what kind of microbes and then they can, you know, have them on their label, for example, or have them in their narrative. So there, we think that there are ways uh, to reconcile them, but it requires a conversation that n- might not necessarily be happening at this stage. Christy? Sarah beautifully captured that. And part of what I think is so powerful here is the idea that we do think technology could be harnessed in a way to make visible to producers the sorts of relationships with microbes that they have already created. So they can also then justify to regulators and to consumers who might not yet have established that trust with them, why their food is safe. And I'm just really curious, why is it that microbiology still remains something that is so expensive to do and that requires the 
like these outside laboratories as opposed to we have all of there there are very simple technologies available out there that could be made even more accessible um and if i think about your classes christy why microbiology remains so removed from the humanities and social sciences absolutely because it doesn't have to be well, thank you so much, Sara and Christy, for joining us. Listeners can follow the ferment and read the full article in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, issue 21.1. For more details, visit gastronomica.org. Join us next week as we talk with Kristen R. Moon and Jennifer Road Ward about their article on taste, identity, and cuisine in Cuba. And for listeners who'd like to stay tuned to future episodes, please subscribe to the Gastronomica podcast on your favorite podcast platform.